Les Carlyle, who's the Group Conservation Manager for and Beyond, has spent more than four decades working in conservation in Africa. And Beyond's innovative approach to conservation, with a strong focus on community participation, is often regarded as the blueprint for international ecotourism. We speak about the plight of Africa's iconic animals, such as the lion, elephant and rhino, and what we can do to ensure their survival for future generations. This podcast is brought to you by Leopard, your guide to tailor-made travel in Southern Africa. To find out more about what we do at Leopard, visit leopard.voyage. This year, 2021, is the 30th anniversary of the creation of Anne Beyond, Les, and it all started in Pinda. Uh, Pinda is quite close to my heart because I grew up in KwaZulu-Natal, and I often visited Umkuzi National Park, which is just south of Pinda. And when I started visiting that reserve in the late 80s, Pinda didn't exist. It was just pineapple, cattle, and sisal farms with no wildlife in sight. Um, I just love the story of Pinda's creation. Um, can you tell our listeners more about it? Yeah, it's quite remarkable. I mean, it's 1st of February 1991 was when I arrived on on Pinda, I was employed to actually put the reserve together. So again, there were still cattle, there were still pineapples, um, and we assembled um, this group of farms uh, to create this vision of linking the Mkuzi wetland in the north to Lake St. Lucia in the south. Um, so uh, it was part of a much bigger conservation plan that's been knocking around within Natal conservation circles for a while. Um, and it really was an amazing honor for me to be um, employed to actually build this reserve that was going to help make this connection. So um, when we arrived in, in 1991, the first order of the day was to make sure that we removed all the internal cattle fences um, because all the different properties in the north, there were seven different properties that were assembled. And while we were taking down the internal fences, we fenced the outside of the reserve to uh, contain any wildlife that we were going to be reintroducing. And then we started reversing the local extinctions for the area, starting with cheetah. We reintroduced the cheetah first. Um, we reintroduced rhino. We were fortunate. Um, our, our founders at the time, uh, Kevin Leo Smith, was a, a property developer and um, agricultural advisor from KwaZulu-Natal. And he'd partnered with a, chap, a lawyer called Trevor Coppen, who'd actually developed Sudwana Bay Lodge and was very keen on getting community participation in, in conservation developments. So, so they'd identified the land, they'd seen all this development of the land, and they were looking for a commercial model to put onto the land. Um, at the same time, Dave Varty um, had engaged with Alan Bernstein from um, JH Isaacs International. Alan was a venture capitalist and was looking at um, innovative ways to finance conservation, and he'd been going to Londolozi to speak to Dave about what was needed to secure conservation land. So Dave had the Londolozi model, Alan had the finance, Trevor and, and um, uh, Trevor Coppen and, and uh, Kevin Leo Smith had the land down in KwaZulu-Natal. And when the four of them got together, Conservation Corporation Africa was born, or CC Africa as it was in the early days. It was referred to as ConsCorp. So it was trying to take a commercial approach to the development of a conservation area. 
Um, and I was employed, but my background is in, in game capture and wildlife translocation. So I was employed to actually build Pinder Private Game Reserve, which was an unbelievable honor. So we started with a cheetah, as I said, we fenced the external boundaries. We got the community involved in removing the internal fences um, and literally thousands of kilometers of, uh, or hundreds of kilometers, should I say, thousands of meters of internal fencing were removed. Um, while we were doing all of this, we engaged with the community on more than just um, what we were sharing resource-wise, we also engaged with them on what the potential benefits of having a reserve next door would mean for them and what the potential impact would be. Obviously, I was going to reintroduce the Big Five and I needed their support, needed them to know that this is what we were doing and we didn't want it to come as a surprise for them. So we engaged with the local farmers associations, both the cattle farmers and the pineapple farmers, Shushui being one of the biggest exporters of pineapples. And surprisingly, we got support from the local communities, um, traditional authorities before we got support from the commercial farmers. Um, and that really surprised me. But the, the local traditional leaders all said that when they were young, these animals existed on the properties. Um, so they knew that lions wouldn't kill people, they would only kill cattle. And if the herders protected the cattle, the impact would be very small. And they knew that these big animals were going to create jobs and bring commercial um, opportunities into the region, which didn't exist in the current uh, state. So it was really remarkable to see the slowly change of um, perceptions, which started within the local rural communities. And the farmers were very suspicious of us initially. And they'd had many developers come in over the years into that area and many failed big money developments. So they were burnt and, and rightfully so. It's truly a remarkable uh, story, um, Liz. Uh, Pinda is also very well known for your cheetah and pangolin conservation work, but um, you've also sent li sent lions to Rwanda to establish a population there when the local population went extinct in 1993, and you've done a lot of work as and beyond to ensure the survival of rhino. Is there one species that you're particularly passionate about, or are they like children? You love them all equally for their peculiarities. I get criticized by my kids for changing which my favorite animal is um, all the time. But obviously, I've worked with cheetah all my life since I was 19 years old. So as predators go, cheetah obviously have a very special place in my life. And they were the first of the predators we reintroduced at Pinda. And remarkably, the conservation authorities had to bend the rules to accommodate what we were doing in Pinda. Uh, Northern KwaZulu-Natal didn't have any legislation allowing the development of a big five reserve on private land. So KwaZulu-Natal in those days, the, the Natal Parks Board, um, zone officers embarked on a, on a plan to try and get the legislation changed to allow the, the reintroduction of lion, elephant, cheetah um, and buffalo onto private land. Uh, rhino already existed on private land, so that was covered within the agricultural and conservation side. But the other animals weren't. So it was a remarkable effort from, from both the conservation authorities and this driven private sector organization, which was Conservation Corporation, um, that was reintroducing and reversing local extinctions on Pinda. So the first local extinction we reversed was the cheetah. Then we reintroduced um, elephants out of the Kruger National Park, reversing that local extinction. Then we reintroduced um, lion once the cheetah were established. And we were the first reserve to reintroduce both cheetah and lion successfully and have both of them sustained. And both the lion population and the cheetah population, we've been able to export animals to other reserves and create new breeding populations of both. 
So those lessons of, of uh, reversing local extinctions were transferred to and have been reinforced through Pinder's history. The, the next step we took was to go to India, and there we helped them reverse the local extinction of a, of a buffalo called a gaur, which is a, um, it's a really big forest-dwelling buffalo that occurs in central um, Madhya Pradesh state in India. And we used the same techniques from my game capture background and engaged the Natal Park Sport vets and the Natal Park Sport capture units to take the South African capture technology to India to train the Indian conservation authorities on how to reverse local extinctions in their parks. So Pinder's influence has been much bigger than just the South African conservation and wildlife story. It's also influenced internationally. Um, the success of the of the Gao relocation project in India, we, we moved 50 animals with the Indian authorities. They've bred up to over 150 in that uh, reserve now. And that reserve is now looking at um, expanding the uh, habitat for Gawa and looking at using that population to repopulate other areas. But that success meant that we were also contacted by um, Tompkins Conservation in South America, who've been rewilding national parks in both Argentina and Chile. And I was asked to go and advise them on a Jaguar reintroduction program in the Ibera wetland in, in Argentina. So the same technology and techniques that we used for our cheetah and lion reintroductions in Pinda and the leopard habituation that had been developed over the years, both in the Sabi Sands at Londolozi and Malamala and Singita, all the big tourism operations in the Sabi Sands, which we applied at Pinda, we were then able to transfer to Argentina. And the first Jaguar release happened a few uh, weeks ago in the Ibera wetland based on all the lessons learned in the African uh, technology. So reversing local extinctions in two different continents based on the successes of the Pinda model. It's been quite remarkable. Your, also, your Rhinos Without Borders program has been very successful. I see that you translocated 100 rhino to Botswana in 2019. Why is the translocation of rhino so important to ensure their survival? I think we're going to have to do everything better in conservation, including setting up new populations. So translocation is a method of setting up new populations and spreading the risk for populations. If they're all confined in one place and something happens in that one population, you lose them all. So it's an accepted conservation principle um, to spread the risk. Um, in the case of Botswana, our plan was to move 100 um, rhinos. We actually only moved 87, but they've bred up significantly since we reintroduced them. And there are over 120 rhinos in that population now. Um, and the reason why we chose Botswana was we started this project in 2013 when Pinda donated six rhinos to the people of Botswana. So it was a private sector um, and beyond donation to the government of Botswana. And, you know, we put a lot of effort and it took us three years to move six rhino into Botswana, get all the permissions in place, raise the funds. It was a huge effort to try and move these six rhinos to get a new population going um, in the Okavango Delta. And when we released them, the president of Botswana came to the release. So here was a private sector organization donating animals to a government. And the president himself came to the release, and that gave us real confidence that we should scale this thing up. And we partnered with Great Plains Conservation um, to pool our resources because they were also uh, contemplating a big reintroduction into Botswana. And Rhinos Without Borders um, was the result, and and the results have been that 120 um, rhino now roaming free in, in uh, northern Botswana. So it really has been a remarkable success 
from all conservation perspectives. I doubt anyone listening to this podcast still believes that rhino horn has any medicinal properties or if it can be used to cure cancer or anything like that. But just to be safe, Liz, please can you tell us what rhino horn is made from and whether it can cure diseases? Rhino horn is effectively keratin. It's the same as your as your fingernail. Um, and the rhino horn has a cutex, which is the growth plate on the front of the nose. In the case of the white rhino, they have two growth plates, a, a secondary horn behind the first one. Um, this is filled with a lot of blood and it uses a lot of energy from the rhino to create this keratin, which is deposited outside of the growth plate and the horn keeps growing. So as the rhino rubs his horn against um, the ground and against rubbing posts and against trees, he shapes it um, and it keeps growing all the time. The same as your fingernails, you keep cutting them, it keeps growing. So it has absolutely no chemical properties that could allow it to have any medicinal or uh, any of these uses at all. Um, so it's completely confounding that it has such incredible value um, in the Middle East. But a lot of the value is not based on its chemical properties. It's based on its durability. It's based on its scarceness. It's based on um, on perception of its value. Uh, they've created a value perception, which is very difficult to undo. It's, it's the same as we use a crushed piece of carbon and we give it significant value. I don't know if you're married and if you've got one on your finger now, but a diamond is effectively a piece of compressed carbon. And we give it significant value in the Western world. So um, in the Eastern world, they give significant value to rhino horn. And it's very, very difficult to undo those kind of um, approaches. So the threats to rhino continue. And remarkably in South Africa, the losses within the state reserves have been so big in the last 10 years that the private sector rhino owners in the country now control more than 60% or 70% of the rhinos in the country um, and between 30 and 40% remains in state reserves. And the private sector population has not grown significantly. It's just that the losses within the state reserves have been significant in the last 10 years. And that's extremely worrying. Yeah, it is. Um, I, I, I find it, uh, I find it uh, unbelievable that... Uh, the, the, the plight of the rhino is still, after all those years ago with Ian Player trying to save rhino from the brink, brink of extinction, they're, they're back here. Um, actually, during lockdown, I was reading some of those old books about conservation in the early days of uh, in KwaZulu-Natal. I started with Tony Pooley's book, which is Mashisha, The Making of a Game Ranger. Uh, he was a family friend of ours and I was at school. Yeah, I was at school with his um, his younger son, Thomas. So um, I remember him him clearly, um, and he had such a wonderful sense of humor, which reading that book just had me in stitches about some of the game capture stories, especially the Impala capture. I'm sure you also have a few funny stories of wildlife capture and translocation. Yeah, of course. You, one, of the, one of the challenges of, of wildlife capture and translocation is that no two animals behave the same. So you, there's no... The, you, you apply a general set of principles and then you just have to adapt as you go and be as flexible as possible. So we've had lots of really hilarious um, contacts with wildlife. One of, the, one of the amazing ones was when we were catching the first rhino for Pinda, um, I had a film crew with me and uh, the cameraman was running behind me. I had a radio in one hand talking to the helicopter and the helicopter had come in, put a dart into a rhino that was part of a crash and the helicopter would then pull back and watch the rhino running and see where the darted rhino was. 
and I came into the scene with a rope in my hand and a radio, and I was running up to the rhino to go and throw the rope around its back leg so we could put a handbrake on it. Um, and I started accelerating because I could see through the long grass this backside moving in front of me, and I started running hard at the rhino, and the next minute the radio went, wrong rhino, wrong rhino. I was just about to <laughs> rope a rhino that didn't have a dart in its behind, <laughs> the consequences of which would have been quite hilarious. Um, so yes. that was when the early rhino ones at Pinder. Ah, oh, funny. Yeah, I'm sure you could keep us entertained for hours on on those stories. Um, I was also reading, also during lockdown last year, I had, had some time and I was reading Dr. Ian Player's books. Um, I loved his book about the legendary uh, game game ranger Mangubu and Tumbela. But the most exciting stories were the ones that I, I found in White Rhino Saga. And I just found it incredible how in those early days they had to figure out the correct tranquilizer dosage, how to transport these massive animals, how to feed them in enclosures because rhinos obviously eat a lot. Um, and this book is basically a story of how Ian Player and his team saved the rhino for future generations. Um, you were also very much part of um, game capture and management in KwaZulu-Natal as you've been speaking about, Les, um, although sometime after Ian Player. What was it like to be part of these groundbreaking game capture operations? Yeah, it was huge amounts of fun. I mean, there was no textbook on, on game capture when, when we started. Um, uh, Eddie Young had written a book called The Capture and Care Manual, which was based on experience from zoos. And that really was the basis that people were using in wildlife. But it didn't take into account adrenaline caused by running long distances and that completely changed the doses that were required for free-ranging wild animals, which is what Ian and them had to work out. He was also developing drugs with, with Dr. Hathorn, um, and they developed uh, the use of M99, uh, etophene hydrochloride. So they were really at the pioneering. It was that basis of that, the use of that drug that completely revolutionized our ability to manage and translocate wildlife. The single biggest event in conservation and translocation history was the refinement of M99 as a, as a capture drug and the establishment of doses. And what's quite remarkable is that the amount of M99 that you use to contain a two and a half ton rhino bull is one fifth of what you would use to contain an 800 kilogram buffalo. So there's no correlation be interspecies between weight. So you, it literally was trial and error to try and work all of this out. You'll use 10 milligrams or even 12 milligrams of M99 on a big buffalo bull, and you'll use 2.5 milligrams on a big rhino bull. And the rhino bull weighs three times what the buffalo does, and the dosage is five times less. So there's no correlation interspecies between the weight of the animal and the dose that you have to use. Their metabolic rates are the main determinant and the susceptibility to the impact of the chemical invasion of their systems is what causes the immobilization. So really remarkable stuff. When we, giraffe was exactly the same. We had to, we had to work out, I was involved in, in giraffe capture and our initial mortality rate in the late 1970s was as high as 25% of the giraffe that we touched died. Um, and the vet I was working for said, no, we've got, to, we've got to improve on that. So we really worked hard on recording every dose and every minute and every time. And we had a complete accident, which meant that we double dosed one particular giraffe. Um, we were sitting on the back of a vehicle and the, the drug box fell off the vehicle when the, when the driver slipped the clutch. 
Um, so all the darts that had been put up to be filled for, for darting the giraffe fell off the back of a, a drag box. When I picked them up again, I put them in a different order to what they'd been before. So the first two had been loaded with drag and I put them up um, on the second two positions. So the first two were empty. So the vet came and loaded the second two with dosages. And when we darted the first animal, the first dart, we couldn't get near it. It disappeared with a dart in its behind. No sign of any immobilization at all. And we couldn't work it out. We darted the second one, same thing. It just kept going. It didn't stop. We never found the dart because we, we didn't have helicopters at this stage. We were doing it all on the ground. The third one we darted, I got up to and put a rope around it in seven minutes. And we couldn't work out the difference. You know, first two, no impact at all. Second one, seven minutes. Third one, seven minutes, got the rope on it. So that evening we were sitting trying to work out what particularly, what was the difference? And the only thing we could think of was that we doubled the dose in those last two dots. So we tried that the next day with double the doses and we completely halved our um, downtime to get to the animals from 15 to 20 minutes down to seven minutes. And then the mortality rate also came down. So we were able to reduce our darting um, mortality rate down to 10% in those days. And now it's refined right down to 25 or 1%. So it's much more, much more professional than it was 40 years ago when I started doing it. But thank goodness for all you, all the early conservationists who, who tried tried these um, different methods because obviously today it's uh, much more scientific and you have much higher success rates. But we've got a lot to thank the early conservationists for. And as you were talking, I was just also remembering stories from a friend of my father, uh, Frank Junor. He was a young scientist involved in Operation Noah up in Lake Kariba with uh, Rupert Fothergill. And... Um, just some crazy stories about getting they, I actually found a video from the time of, of a black rhino being roped and put onto a um, floating device, kind of a boat and and rescued. So yeah, some really, really exciting and interesting times those must have been. But today in conservation, Liz, what are some of the biggest challenges that you're facing now in 2021? I think it's um the biggest threat to conservation in the world today is lack of habitat and habitat loss. As the populations grow across the planet, space for wildlife is decreasing. And, and that's having a significant effect. It's creating islands of individual species, uh, which are going to have to be managed from a genetic point of view. We're going to have to do mechanical dispersals because the dispersal routes are being cut. So the, 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 um, visions of having these biological corridors that connect all the biological hotspots across um, landscapes and habitats in intercountry, those are being directly affected by population growth and by infrastructure development. So the challenge is going to be to try and find a happy medium between securing what we need biodiversity wise, because we, the 8 million or 8 billion inhabitants of this planet, will not survive unless we can maintain biodiversity on the planet. Um, all of our current food support, all of our current food sources are based on the biodiversity that we find on this living planet. So I think um, the challenge uh, for conservation is going to be uh, to try and look at the modern um, the, the modern communication systems that potentially threaten conservation because um, the uninformed public opinion is almost as dangerous for conservation as the rural community who has no option but to destroy the wildlife that is destroying his livelihood. 
So both have major conservation consequences. And conservation is complicated. It's not a simple do this and you fix everything. In every single scenario, there are different environments, different um, uh, pressures that are going to have different outcomes. And doing the same thing in different places, you'll have different outcomes, often unintended consequences from conservation actions. And most of these things have only been learned over time. We, with the best intentions in the world, you're going to do something, and the consequence of that best intention is a complete disaster for a specific area. It might have worked in the area that you're working in, but when it's duplicated, it has a completely different outcome. So, so in uninformed public opinion, which now is driving a lot of conservation around the world through social media and through um, these kind of forums where everybody has a voice, whether it's qualified or not. And if there are enough people having a voice, their opinion gets forced on the people that don't have a voice and are quite busy trying to do other things. So... Uh, the, one of the big threats to conservation in the world today is uninformed public opinion on social media that's going to sacrifice conservation on the crucible of public opinion. Yeah, it, it impacts uh, so many aspects of our lives, actually. Uh, misinformation, it's one of the, probably one of the biggest threats um, facing, facing the world right now, and particularly so for conservation and as you were saying it's biodiversity is so important and it's really a fine balance that you need to to keep there um uh, in the oceans as well because i know that and beyond operates in oceans surrounding the african continent specifically the indian ocean off the coast of tanzania with nemba island and off the coast with of mozambique with benguera and vermezi island can you tell us a bit more about our oceans without borders program well, of course, the, the whole idea of, of taking a, um, a commercial base that has a massive following of international high-influencing guests that travel to these remote destinations that you can use to raise the profile and change the way these high-net-worth individuals traveling around the world impact on their environments when they go home. We have an inordinate responsibility to be able to influence much bigger than the areas that we directly um, control and, and protect. And that lesson from the, our terrestrial successes of managing reserves and Rhinos Without Borders project and the successes we've had there led to the establishment of Oceans Without Borders to try and apply the similar rationale to the oceans. The threats to the oceans are generally and mainly anthropogenic. It's human-induced impact on the oceans. Um, and the beneficiaries of uh, the impact are predominantly our food supply and our food source that the oceans provide. So we have to try and find ways that we can make our utilization of the ocean resources sustainable, and we have to find ways that we can maintain the biodiversity in the oceans, which has a major impact on the Earth's ability to sustain life. So it's more than just, it's our own survival that's dependent on us maintaining biodiversity, both in the land, in the air, and most importantly, in the oceans. So it's been a wonderful um, lesson for us to try and see how all of these things are linked. And when you look at Vermezi Island sitting in the center, um, just on the Tanzanian-Mozambican border in northern Mozambique, and that's where the equatorial currents hit into the side of Africa and spread both north and south. So, so the mother reefs in that particular areas of the Corimbas in, in northern Mozambique are critical for all of the coral reefs north and south um, uh, in the Indian Ocean. So it really is a remarkable opportunity for us 
to pull together all of the differing resources to cooperate on achieving an outcome that we all need. And I think that's the future of conservation is going to be putting your ego in your pocket, working together with people. You don't have to like them. You don't have to, but you have to work together to achieve a conservation outcome. And it's trying to understand that that's where we need to go is cooperation is going to secure conservation in the long term. That's going to be key. In my tour operating business with Leopard, I really love working with organizations like and beyond because of your focus on conservation. But of course, the hospitality side of your business is excellent too. Um, but your strong, your strong ethos of caring for the land, the people and the wildlife in the countries you work in is truly impressive. How do you balance the conservation and the hospitality side of your business when it comes to um, your lodges and your guest experience? We're really fortunate is that care of the land, care of the wildlife and care of the people has been our mantra since we started back in 1991. It hasn't changed in any way. So it's a fundamental way we operate. So we don't have to balance anything. We have to look after all three all the time in order for us to be sustainable and for us to be successful. Um, people travel with us specifically because of uh, wanting to know that they're making a difference when they travel with the organization that they booked with. And that's been fundamental to our hospitality. It's not only about taking people in rural communities that have never had jobs, training them up, giving them jobs, and allowing them to rub shoulders with the who's who of the world at these unbelievable lodges that create world-class experiences that change the way they view uh, their impact on the planet. You know, we look at it from a sustainability point of view. If we switch off all the lights in all of our lodges, we switch off 50 lights. But if we have a guest who runs businesses internationally and he decides his businesses are going to switch off the lights, we switch off thousands of lights across the planet. And it's that multiplier effect that's been fundamental to and beyond success. And I think the reason why folks like yourself choose to send guests to us who travel with us because we like to try and mollycoddle them and give them these world-class experiences that they are absolutely blown away by. If we have guests crying in the car park because they don't want to leave, then we know we've struck a chord. And it happens regularly at Ambient Lodges. And I've been privileged to have been there on a, quite a few occasions when there's not a dry eye in the room because of the impact that this experience has had on those guests who are now going to go back home and hopefully influence the way they impact on the planet back home. Yeah, your staff are, are truly exceptional. I think the way that they make guests feel part of the family, the Unbeyond family, is is truly remarkable. Um, they're so warm and friendly, and as you say, guests cry <laughs> because they don't want to leave such a, such an incredible um, place. And I also like what you say about how impactful the experience is on guests. Um, I like to send guests to places where conservation is an important component of the experience because even if the guest isn't interested in conservation to start with, they always leave with a deeper appreciation for the plight of Africa's iconic animals like the lion, the, the elephant, the rhino. And it's sometimes hard to explain to people who've never been in the wild before what it's like to observe these animals in their natural habitat. Um, we, you and I, have been lucky to grow up and regularly visit the bush. But how do you explain the importance of conserving our iconic African wildlife when you travel overseas to people who haven't experienced it before? Oh, that's an extremely difficult and um, personal 
um, question to ask because it's everybody has different triggers that uh, the reason for them wanting to travel is going to be to rest or to get away from to have a complete break. Um, some are wanting to travel because they actually want to make a difference, and those ones are quite easy because then the the link between caring for the land and most importantly the wildlife and the people then becomes a motivation for them to travel. But often people are coming just for a break, and when they're coming just for a break, they don't expect to be startled by the unbelievable beauty that they see in a giraffe, for example, and how long its tongue is when it sticks it out over those long white thorns and then strips the leaves off the branch. I mean, it's quite it's quite remarkable. And that rubbery lip that then chews this thorny crusted branch into into nutrients, which it recycles into the soil. So it really is quite something for, for people to suddenly make the connection between all of these cycles of life and to understand that we are fundamental to and a critical part of the cycles of life. And the web of life is very, very tenuous. When you think about a spider's web and you think about all the connections Everything in the system is interconnected. And probably one of the things that gets guests the most is that when you visually see the interconnectedness that you experience on a safari anywhere in the world, whether it's in the, in Bhutan or in the forests of India or in the Chilean Andes, it's the same understanding of the web of life and the connections and how we fit into that. And as we impact on the planet we're cutting more and more of the strands that support this web and at what stage are we going to cut the final strand that makes the web collapse and then you can start understanding how important biodiversity is for our futures and how going to these places is one of the best ways to get your tourism dollar to make a difference to biodiversity it's really good to make donations to all of the NGOs in the world, but the best way to secure wildlife across the world is go and see that wildlife in its wild place because then your dollar stays in that reserve and helps protect the, the wildlife of that area. So that's generally the best uh, motivation to give to people to come to Africa. If you want to make a difference and you want your dollar to make a, your hard-earned dollar to make a real difference, go on holiday and see the wildlife in the destination where it occurs then you're going to make a difference to that wildlife. And if you can make a difference to the people that depend on it, even better. And that's the challenge for us, is to try and link the communities outside of the parks and the benefits to the wildlife inside the parks. Because if the parks have no relevance to the communities, the parks have no future. And that story we've been singing for 30 years. Initially, we were our own, but today everybody involved in sustainable tourism and every national park anywhere in the world agrees that we have to have local support to maintain relevance in the local economy. I just love that you mentioned the example of the giraffe's tongue because it's honestly the thing that surprises my kids the most. They are fascinated when they see giraffes eating, wrapping their tongues around those um, those acacia trees, those big thorn trees. Um, but to get back to, um, to what you were saying now, Les, a big part of your success as a company has been your innovative approach to the local population that surrounds the protected areas you work in. Um, often these people were removed from their land to create national parks, um, but your model is often regarded as a blueprint for international ecotourism. How did you get it right? As I said in the beginning, I think one of the one of the drivers of a mantra like caring for the land, caring for the wildlife, and most importantly, caring for the people, um, as foreign as it was 30 years ago, 
the benefits of that model today are completely understood. And in fact, we have the highest density of rhinos in northern KwaZulu-Natal. So it's all about managing perception and making sure that the community perception is that the reserve provides value and that the wildlife provides value. So I think our success has been a single-minded focus on making sure that we develop all three of the pillars of our model simultaneously all the time. So even though and beyond wasn't making any money in the early days, we were able to develop schools. We were able to put kids through university. We were able to get the bursary programs going. We were able to open a classroom and at the opening ceremony say to the local district uh, education um, inspector that this classroom was built by the rhinos other side that fence and make a direct link between the rhinos and the classroom. So the community perception was that the rhinos are giving us these classrooms because international guests are coming to see them and closing that loop all the time through water projects and through bursaries um, becomes absolutely important. It's one thing to just develop with the communities, but if you don't make the connection of where the revenue is coming from, then you lose it. So, you know, I always ask our staff within and beyond, who do you work for? And they will say, well, now I work for my manager. No, you don't work for him. Your manager works for the director and the director works for the board. And who do our board work for? And they sit and they look at you and say, we all work for the wildlife. Because if there's no wildlife, none of this works. We can't make a difference to anything. We can't secure our own futures. We can't secure the reserve. We can't understand the webs of life. We can't make a difference to education. And most importantly, we can't sustain ourselves on the planet. So it's understanding that circle that keeps us going. So we've been fortunate in that it's been a fundamental part of what we've done since we started. And the achievements have been significant. I mean, when you look at, at our 2019 report on the care of the land side, you know, with 2,000 kilometers of coastline influence to the oceans without borders, um, 740,000 plastic water bottles have moved out of the system just by putting water bottling plants into the lodges. Significant impacts on, on the land. When you look at the wildlife side, the, the gaur relocation, 150 new gaur in a, in a reserve in, in India, um, more than uh, 30 adders dica on Nemba Island, which is a highly endangered species, a reintroduction there has been a remarkable success. We've even started repopulating new adders dica populations off the Nemba population. And, and then when you look at the care of the people thing, 285 classrooms built in the last 30 years. That's a significant number of very big schools that have been built outside of the, the conservation areas because of one focused commercial tourism operation. And if we all work together and pool our resources, we're going to be able to take this thing to a much higher level in the future. And that's where the future of conservation lies, in all of us working together. All the operators in a region need to be focused on coordinating their responses into the communities and their responses to conservation. And then we're going to nail this thing and we're going to have a really big future. And I think that's what we have to do. I think one thing about lockdown has given us a chance to think about who we need and how we need to work together because we all need each other in this planet. And the more we can work together, the better the future is going to be. Indeed. And as um, we're recording this, I'm about to travel to Rwanda to see the gorillas in the Volcanoes National Park. And I recently read about six rangers who were killed in the Democratic Republic of Congo by militia. So Virunga, which is on the DRC side, is mineral rich land. And the local communities want access to the land, especially the trees in the rainforest, because they use that to make charcoal, which sells for high 
prices. So there's an example where people are not poaching gorillas for meat or illegal wildlife trade, but they're under threat because people want access to the land to exploit it because they're obviously not seeing the benefits, the tangible benefits of conserving the gorillas. And I was shocked to hear that over 200 rangers have died defending the park from militia. So I see that as an example of why we just have to get conservation right for South Africa. Now, not only for South Africa, I think across Africa, I think the challenges are exactly the same, and there's a lovely example of that. But the threats are much bigger, and the organization within the commercial world and the unconscioned illegal commercial world is where the biggest threats come from. We spoke about the rhino horn situation. In the rhino horn fight, you've got underfunded NGOs and underfunded conservation organizations taking on criminal cartels who are properly funded, properly resourced. So there's a complete imbalance in the war and exactly the same things playing itself out in many endangered species. Um, and one of, the th one of the challenges we have is that trying to use endangered species and iconic species as calls to action to secure the whole system from the pangolins on the ground that eat the, the termites right the way through to the elephants. But you can't call to action the whole system because that loses its impact and people can't really relate to it. So we use these individual iconic species as calls to action, but the outcome is protecting the system in which that iconic species occurs. And that allows us to make a difference to the system which protects biodiversity. And then making that biodiversity relevant to the communities is the challenge of the Virungas. And if you look across the fence in, in Rwanda, how successful they've been there in using guerrilla tourism as the key driver of community beneficiation. Um, and it's got total community support in that particular context. So there are lessons that can be learned for the Virungas in, in, the, in the region, rather. You don't have to go far to find them. And I think that's one of the biggest eye-openers for me is that, is that everybody's trying different ways of doing the same thing, which is benefiting the land, the wildlife, and the people. Um, and there are many models in many different ways that are succeeding. As long as you keep all of those ingredients in the mix, you've got a really good chance of making a real difference to the outcome. Land ownership is also such a powerful and emotive issue in here in South Africa and I'm sure in many other African countries. And what I like about the Unbeyond model is that the local community actually owns a lot of the land that's then managed by Pinda, specifically in that situation. Why is it important that the land is actually community-owned? Well, I think um, we've always taken the view that the land use is the important aspect. We need to keep the land use under conservation, and the ownership is just where the benefits should be flowing. So the more ownership you've got in community land, the bigger the benefits that flow to them, and therefore the more relevance the conservation area has. So ownership is one of the roots of getting benefit from a conservation area. It's not the only one, and in many cases it's not a available to the communities in national parks cases. So there you've got to find innovative ways of beneficiating the communities outside the parks from the wildlife. So I think there's some really nice models um, around that are working on that. So uh, for me, the land ownership issue and community ownership is a major opportunity in Africa. If you take um, the, the current uh, threats, which are habitat loss. Most of that habitat loss is happening outside of protected areas. So we're losing habitat at a significant rate in unprotected areas where the land use is variable and depends on commercial viability. So, so stripping the forests and putting 
um, crops in is a better option than protecting the forests and keeping wildlife going because there's no way of generating revenue from that wildlife. So therefore, brutal commercialization is going to denude a lot of areas of wildlife unless we can find ways where that wildlife generates revenue for those same communities. So if you can supply the local communities with a wildlife revenue that replaces the charcoal revenue from a forested area, you can then secure the forests. And one of the innovative um, funding opportunities there obviously is carbon sequestration. So there are um, big moves in carbon sequestration models to try and secure forests to benefit communities, to keep them natural. And then they can replace the carbon revenue they would have got from charcoal with carbon revenue paid by companies that are polluting the planet somewhere else that need to buy carbon offsets that can keep those forests going and keep that carbon um, secured. So there's some innovative and big moves in that direction at the moment, and we're looking at quite a few of those ourselves. Um, they're still uh, immature, but they are developing. So I think there's a lot of change coming. Um, one thing that COVID has given us is a chance to review everything that we do and look at where we need to go, who we need to partner with, and how we're going to get there together. Because I think companies operating exclusively on their own is not going to be part of the future. It is going to be about the bigger your partnership, the more resilient you're going to be, the more impact you're going to be able to have. Conservation is expensive, though. Can it be fully funded by tourism alone, or do you need help from, I mean, you were speaking about partnerships. Would that be government, uh, philanthropists, donors? Um, I suppose the thinking around funding has also changed with the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, it is all of the above. <laughs> and the ones we haven't thought of yet. We have to find new ways. We've always taken the view that having um, uh Wildlife areas exclusively funded by tourism is risky because tourism is a fickle business. So we've always viewed um, donor funding, state funding, conservation funding as critical components, NGO funding, of the conservation funding blend that you need where tourism is, is a driver and one of the funds. And if you look at, if you look at land use in South Africa alone, um, the, the exclusive uh, photographic safari area of land under conservation is about um, 700,000 hectares of land is secured exclusively by photographic safaris. And if you look at national parks, we have about 7.3 million hectares secured by national parks, underfunded by the state because they can't get to everything. And being hammered, is particularly if you use rhino as a litmus test of the, the biodiversity uh, sustainability in our parks. And then if you look at the rest of the private sector, which includes consumptive utilization, as much as 22 million hectares is secured by commercially utilizing wildlife in South Africa. So in the South African model, where ownership of wildlife rests with the landowner, it's a completely different situation to other areas in Africa. And consumptive utilization includes live translocation, live sales, and hunting, um, commercial and, and sustainable hunting. And if you look at that as a, as a land use and how it's frowned on by the rest of the world and how we in the photographic tourism industry who protect a small portion of the country have such a big voice in the conservation world, whereas the guys who are protecting significant amounts of land have no voice, have very little voice and are just poo-pooed, aren't listened to because of the moral objections to what they do. You know, we're quite happy to have cattle farms where cattle are reared so they can be killed to be eaten. 
but they don't want wildlife farms where wildlife are reared to be killed, to be eaten. That's unacceptable. So it's this whole moral dilemma that um, the world is facing about our resources, our utilities and our impact on the planet. As people become much more aware of the impact that we're having on the planet, we also need to be much more aware of how the planet's going to sustain us and how we need to change our behavior in the way we utilize the resources of the planet. You know, if you look at food production, the biggest exporter of food in the world is the U.S. The second biggest exporter of food in the world is Holland. Go figure. So space isn't what we need for food production. So we always thought and I always believed that food production required space. Well, it might not. If we use the Dutch technology, we could feed a significant number of these 8 billion people. We're saying there's not enough space on the planet, but the technology is there. It's just not being applied in the right places. So we need to mix up this pot a little bit more and get much more innovative in applying the right technologies to sustain our biodiversity that can secure all of our wilderness areas because our futures might depend on some of that biodiversity that we haven't even recorded yet. Things are going extinct before we've even discovered them. And that's a challenge to our futures on the planet. So it's trying to find better ways of interacting with all of our environment, much more holistic ways that I think the future is going to be dictated by. Often people visit Africa and are changed by their experiences here. If they've seen animals such as lions and leopards and rhinos in the wild, they often become quite passionate about conservation themselves. So what can people do to help conservation in Africa, especially if they're situated outside of the continent? I think um, probably the biggest uh, support that that uh, all conservation needs around the world is the big NGOs are literally propping up conservation across the whole of Africa since the tourism industry collapsed because the tourism industry was effectively supporting national parks, provincial parks, right the way across Africa. So in an African context, supporting the big NGOs is a critical component. And when you look at things like the Lion Recovery Fund that's been set up by WCS, supporting NGOs that are supporting national park staff with salaries and wages where they can't be paid by the national parks in some African countries. That kind of support um, is absolutely critical. So supporting local big NGOs is a really big uh, component of what's needed going forward. But then most importantly, as travel and tourism um, starts regularizing again, it's really important to leverage your travel dollars to make a real difference. Because we've seen that um, wildlife tourism around the world was dependent on international travel dollars, and international travel dollars can and will make a significant difference going forward. We've just got to find innovative ways of making it safe for people to travel, because we know how to make their dollar make a difference to the conservation areas on the ground. So support your local NGOs, support the big international NGOs that are making a difference around the world, and then go on holiday to secure the wildlife at destination as soon as you possibly can. We need you. That's the, that would be my answer. Yeah, and that's where and beyond and leopard can help um, is is to try and help people travel better and travel um, with more impact in in Africa. Um, just to touch quickly on a on a controversial subject, um, people often come to Africa and like to interact with wildlife that's in captivity. There's a number of places here where tourists can pay to interact with um, wildlife, such as petting lion cubs or taking photos with adult elephants or lions. Uh, my view is that wildlife are not meant to be touched by humans, so 
it's not natural for them to allow humans to touch them and the taming process to allow that to happen often involves some pain for the animal. Um, as a conservationist, do you have any views on, on wildlife interaction centers and whether they aid or harm conservation efforts? I think that um, the difference between wildlife interaction centers and zoos needs to be very clear. I think zoos have a very clear and defined role in society. Millions and millions of kids would never see any wildlife without zoos. So I totally personally support zoos. Um, I totally disagree with the interaction of live wildlife, not because of the action itself, but because of the consequences of that action. So when you take into account a lion petting situation, lions are bred, the cubs are petted. What happens to those cubs when they're two years old? They're now too big to be petted and you can't put guests in with them. So all you're doing is you're feeding the canned lion industry by allowing people to pet the lion cubs. So the lion cub industry is a feeder of the canned lion hunting industry, which is morally objectionable in any circles by anybody. Nobody appreciates um, that uh, outcome. So it's, it's understanding the outcome of the action that you're having. These things often get wrapped up in we making a difference to these lions, we breeding them so that we can reintroduce them. Well, the facts are that most lion areas that have lions have too many. The reason why we were able to send lions to Akagera and translocate lions to other reserves in Africa is that our lion population is productive and there isn't enough space for them in the reserve that we own. So we're producing for uh, translocation to set up new populations. So the free-ranging wild population is threatened by habitat loss outside of the protected areas. Within the protected areas, they are locally abundant and they are producing. So to have production systems outside, that's just simply not required in the case of lions because we're producing enough internally in the conservation areas. So that's simply a commercial activity with no morals where the animals are simply resources that are being utilized, used and abused in most cases. And that's what makes it problematic. But let me just ask the final question, which is where can people find out more about and beyond conservation efforts and your um, your lodges? Yeah. yeah, I mean, and beyond is very active both on Facebook, um, on, on all the social media platforms, but our website is the main repository of all of our information. If you go onto the impact side of and beyond, which is clearly marked on the and beyond website, you can follow all of our impact uh, platforms and the impact that we've had and that we continue to have um, by hosting people in these remarkable places around Africa and in fact around the world. Thanks Liz. And yeah, we hope to welcome more guests in the coming years to both and beyond and by leopard thank you les thanks for listening to this episode to find out more about what we do at leopard visit leopard.voyage